it, it doesn't matter, and it's actually kind of cool. But in a film, I didn't I didn't want it to feel mannered in that way, no. so I just gave them names. Never mind the disconnect between how often we actually use one another's names in conversation in the real world versus just how much more film characters use one another's names in conversation. The dismissiveness of I just gave them names belies a larger and potentially more interesting conversation regarding Annihilation and the adaptation thereof, and regarding Garland's obvious influences in that adaptation. Then again, Garland claims in the same talk that he was drawn to the novel Annihilation after it was sent to him by its originality. It's genuinely original as a book, and that is unusual in itself because uh, most stories that we encounter in literature and in cinema and in television are, are actually repeats of stories that we tell ourselves again and again and again for whatever reason. It's like a form of reassurance or... Uh, a, a ritual that we need or enjoy or something and this wasn't like that it just stepped outside it completely so first off it was original I've already explained several times in this show how Annihilation at least in its broader strokes echoes Roadside Picnic echoes the Crystal World echoes Madame Butterfly echoes even to the Lighthouse and Heart of Darkness Alex Garland clearly has an interest in science fiction and horror, having written the screenplays for 28 Days Later, Sunshine, Never Let Me Go, Dread, Ex Machina, and Annihilation, and having directed those last two as well. In particular, for the record, and to reiterate from earlier episodes, Lomax shares his name with a character from Ballard's novel The Drought. Meyer shares a name with a character in Ballard's short story The Waiting Grounds. Thorinson shares her name with a character from Ballard's novel The Crystal World and the choice of the first name Anya may be reference to Olin Thornton's planet Anyar in the Destiny's Crucible series. Radic takes her name from the Crystal World as well. The Crystal World also has a major male character, Ventress, whose wife's name is Serena, which is a variant on Selena. Garland has already had a character called Selena in 28 Days Later, and a character called Cassie in Sunshine. Karen's comes from Ballard's novel The Drowned World. Additionally, while it is a common name in fiction, there is a shepherd in Ballard's short story, Myths of the Near Future. And while references to the biblical Cain are common in many forms of fiction, since I'm connecting everything to Ballard here in his short story, The Venus Hunters, characters discuss briefly a four-hour film adaptation of the story of Cain and Abel. Additionally, Gil Cain created the Floronic Man, a.k.a. Jason Woodruff, who, while he first appeared in Adam No. 1 as a villain in Flash 245 as the Floronic Man, played a significant role in Alan Moore's run on Swamp Thing. In the saga of the Swamp Thing number 21, February 1981, it is Dr. Woodruff who explains that Swamp Thing is not a transformed Alec Holland, but rather, quote, a plant that was trying its level best to be Alec Holland, end quote. This revelation, specifically, is surely something going through Garland's head when he cites Swamp Thing as an influence. He explains to Sci-Fi Wire, 22nd May 2018, how Alan Moore's Swamp Thing influenced Annihilation. If I was going to hazard a guess, I'd probably say Alan Moore, um, British comic book writer. I I suspect there's some Alan Moore in there. He's he's mentioned uh, in the in the past how the Alan Moore comics were a big influence on him. And Alan is, is a yeah, very intellectual writer in, in the same way, I think, that, that Alex is. Swamp Thing. Um, <laughs> so, so this will make sense to people who were fans of comic books in the 1980s, which is a, is a niche crowd. Um, but to those people, Alan Moore's Swamp Thing has a 
appears about two thirds of the way through the film uh, in these sort of frozen statue figures. So there you go. There's one. That is concept artist Jock speaking in the middle of that clip. I will likely return to the potential Alan Moore influences in minutes 80 and 81 as Josie gives in to the shimmer. But for now, I take issue with something Garland says previously in that same Sci-Fi Wire interview when he suggests that his real influences outside of Vandermeer's novel, of course, are unknown. The real influences, not the post-rationalized or even pre-rationalized influences, are, are sort of unknown to me. I think. Um, If certain thematic similarities were all there were in common between the various Ballard texts, one could assume a subconscious influence only. Garland grows up reading Ballard, certain broad strokes remain in his head. Those same broad strokes exist in Jeff Vandermeer's head when he writes Annihilation. Roadside Picnic and or Stalker also surely influence Vandermeer and likely influence Garland. But when it comes to the specificity of names, it feels more deliberate. At the least, Garland skims through copies of Ballard's novels and short stories he has on a bookshelf at home when coming up with names for Vandermeer's unnamed explorers. At most, Garland chooses them to make explicit connections for those who would also get those references. Having read Ballard before seeing Annihilation, or perhaps circling back to Ballard after discovering these connections, as I have. Annihilation is a hard sell to an audience, I get it. It nearly didn't make it into theaters at all in the U.S., Boris Kitt explains in The Hollywood Reporter, 7th December 2017, quote, The movie, which wrapped shooting in July 2016, had a poor test screening this summer that sources say was the root of the conflict. After the screening, the head of Skydance Productions, David Ellison, became concerned that the movie was too intellectual and too complicated, according to sources, and wanted changes made to make it appeal to a wider audience. They included making Portman's character more sympathetic, as well as tweaking the ending. Scott Rudin, who executive produced Ex Machina, sided with Garland, defending the movie and refused to take notes. Rudin was able to hold his line, according to a source, because he has final cut. Things got testier from there, with Paramount caught in the middle. The studio ultimately decided that finding another distributor, preferably a streamer, could be the best fit for the movie, which was deemed to have certain box office ceilings. With Ellison not wanting to lose money after the poor performances of Geostorm, The billionaire producer is seeking to avoid a worldwide release and hopes that a digital release may be a better fit. The deal calls for Netflix to cover a good chunk of the production budget, which is in the $55 million range. It's also a win for Paramount, which limits its exposure in a deal made by a previous regime. End quote. Alex Garland tells Germain Lussier at io9, 13th December 2017, quote, It's disappointing. I've got nothing against streaming as a medium. The Handmaid's Tale was not made for the big screen, and I think it was absolutely stunning. It's more that we made this film for the big screen. Then I have to tell really good friends and colleagues, hey, this is what's happening, and they're disappointed. So that kind of sucks. End quote. With this decision made in December, of course, Garland has to play up whatever he can about the film, which includes suggesting an originality that does not bear out against evidence. This does not necessarily mean that he is lying, Maybe his subconscious notions of what Ballard was like when he read him years ago drew him to the bookshelf when seeking names. That does not mean that it is anything more than a fleeting set of illusions. Similarly, no story is ever really original anymore. Garland may go too far in suggesting that Vandermeer's Annihilation is not telling a story that has been told before, but the details are what matter anyway. And however much the broad strokes or even passing details of Vandermeer, of Garland, come from other sources, that does not make the story non-unique, and certainly does not make it unworthy. In fact, having come to Ballard by way of annihilation, 
into Vandermeer's novel by way of Garland's film, I would argue that the experience of consuming one version of whatever this story is augments every other consumption, as it should. This is not a case of theft, far from it in fact, simply a director backed into a distributive corner, perhaps overselling his product. And why would he not? Now back to the script. Ventress has just introduced Lena to the group. Beat. Then Lena lifts a hand. Lena. Hi. Exterior Southern Reach facility night. The facility is picked out in moonlight. A row of floodlights along the perimeter wall illuminate the waste ground and the tree line. Stars vibrate through the shimmer. Exterior Southern Reach facility slash viewing platform night. Lena stands on the viewing platform, leaning against the guardrail. We are finally back to the beginning of this minute. Lena on the platform, three of our leads sitting at the third table, their attention drawn to this lone figure. Still, the scene proceeds differently in the script than it does in the film. She's holding the silver locket containing Jean's photo in her hand, gazing at it. This is not actually very clear in the film because we remain distant from Lena until Thorinson approaches. In the background, Thorinson begins to get up from the table. Thorinson. Yep, I'll do it. I should admit, it feels a little awkward calling her Thorinson instead of Anya, but I build my notes for these episodes within the text of the script, and the script refers to the four women other than Lena by their last names. I will probably get used to it, but I am not used to it yet. Angle on Lena from the left and slightly below. She does seem to be looking at something in her hand, but had we not previously seen the locket, we would have no idea what it might be. Second four, Thorinson appears beside Lena from the left side of frame. Lena, gazing at the locket, her head many miles away, doesn't notice. Thorinson, hey. Lena looks up, snapped back to focus, and closes the locket with a soft snap, before Thorinson can see the image inside. Lena, hey. Thorinson, am I intruding? Lena, no, No, not not at at all. all. Thorinson, cool. (laughs) In the script, she says, I don't know, I was thinking we should bond or something, considering we're travel buddies. And Lena says, you bet. But they are not yet travel buddies. In the film, Lena does not yet know another team is about to enter the Shimmer. In the script, Lena slips the necklace back over her head. But since we get neither an insert shot of the locket, nor a specific angle that shows she is holding it, they also avoid this. Second 14, medium shot, Thornson and Lena. Thornson, you know, I always see you here well. It's... I'm guessing you probably feel weird or awkward. Two things. One, the suggestion that she always sees her here alone suggests a time frame larger than the film makes obvious, that Lena has been here for perhaps several days, or even longer. Two, we'll talk more about Gina Rodriguez next minute, but already she is the most lively character in the film, speaking with energy and moving her hands a lot. Lena crosses her arms and tucks her hands under them, physically closed off. Thorinson keeps her hands out in front of her. Lena, someone, I guess. Thorinson, don't. Second 26, back to the close angle from the left. Thorinson, continued. Seriously, don't. Second 29, angle past Lena on Thorinson. Thorinson, continued. The people, the people here put, put themselves, themselves to sleep in the fetal position. She shrugs. She smiles. Thorinson, continued. <laughs> Beat. I'm on you. She puts her hand out. Second 39, back to the previous angle. Past Thorinson on Lena. 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 She shakes Thorinson's hand. Thorinson. Nice to meet you. It is interesting focusing on this moment knowing what is to come. 
knowing how tired and bitter and angry Anya will be before she dies. Here, she is cheerful, friendly. Lena is still closed off. She looks down before replying. Lena, you too. Second 43, back to the initial angle from this minute, angle on Lena, and now Thorinson, the table's beyond and to the left. Thorinson, um, um, why are you coming to my crew? Come on. Second 46, angle over table. Empty on the left, Josie Raddick, Tessa Thompson on the right. Beyond her, Cassie Shepard, Tuba Nirvani. But she is barely visible from this angle. Thorinson returns to the table at a fast pace. Lena follows more slowly. Thorinson. Ladies. Lena comes into view. Thorinson. Continued. Meet Lena. Lena. The cut is slightly awkward at second 51. We do not really see Shepard get up, but we cut too close on Shepard, now standing. Radic, blurry, and then right foreground. The camera pans left slightly. Lena. Thorinson. Off screen. Shepard. Smiling. Hi. 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 Nice, nice to meet you. Yeah, yeah, that's Cassie Cassie Shepard. Shepard looks toward Radic, though Radic is no longer in the frame. Second 53, angle on all four from behind Radic. She's the only one sitting. The cut to this angle does not quite show us what Thornton is doing, but she pulls her arm back from in front of Radic now. She taps the table to get Radic's attention. Thornton. And Josie Radic. Lena. Hi. Second 56, angle on Radic. She raises her hand to Lena, but Thornton blocks our view of their interaction. Radic. Lena. Off screen. Hi. Nice to meet you. Radic immediately turns her attention back to her food. A bag of chips, it looks like. Thorinson, off screen. Do you Hi. want to angle past Radic on Shepard as she sits back down? Thorinson, off screen. Have a seat. Shepard sits. Angle on Lena. She barely begins to sit down, and time runs out for this minute. We spoke. What was it we said? Wordlessly watching He waits by the window And wonders at the empty place inside Thank you.